Well, it's that time for us to dig into the Word of God, our teaching time of, of our worship service, and I have cued the sound man just now, so we're ready to go. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, if you saw the sparring match last Tuesday in the Senate between Republican Missouri Senator Josh Howley and Berkeley Law Professor Kara Bridges, you probably were shaking your head in disbelief uh, at what was coming out of the professor's mouth and wondering how in the world did we ever get to this point. If you don't know what I'm talking about, let me clue you in. Howley asked Bridges simply if her reference to, quote, people with a capacity for pregnancy, end quote, referred to women. Her response was that, quote, transgender men and non-binary people have the ability to get pregnant and consequently should have the right to an abortion. Bridges then accused the senator for being transphobic, racist, and open, opening up trans people to violence for asking her to define her terms. Her position to me was insane. And I don't mean that in a good way. Oxford defines insanity as, quote, a state of mind that prevents normal perception, behavior, or social interaction, end quote. Yep, that seems to characterize the thinking of this law professor from Berkeley. She proves that people can get to the point where they make themselves believe certain things to be true that aren't just to promote their way of life. But there's something else more damaging than her insane worldview and more subtle. It's the opposite view. The belief that living and interacting on the basis of truth and facts is the wisest course of action and the only hope for a meaningful, successful, and even thriving existence. I can see that you're somewhat concerned. Well, more than this, as a backlash to all the insane rhetoric in universities and government regarding transgenderism, it's easy to see that human reason could quickly become the new faith for many. Now, you're all worried, of course, about the insanity. But as the insanity escalates, so does this need for reason. It's happened before during the Enlightenment period of the 17th and 18th centuries, known also as the Age of Reason. It essentially replaced Christianity. Human reason became man's savior. Satan, of course, is so clever, isn't he? He's very clever. He promotes both wisdom and insanity as viable options for life, tricking us into thinking that we have to make a choice between the two and then successfully keeps us in the dark. Does that surprise you? Well, let me say this. Insane views that people embrace for some new lease on life are completely dead ends, no question about it. But don't think for a moment that human wisdom, at its best, is your savior. It wasn't, dur it wasn't during the Enlightenment, and it isn't now. And when... Uh, I suppose to, to live by uh, wisdom is 
sure to bring lasting significance to all my toil under the sun, then I am quite deceived. Because it isn't. Not insanity and not wisdom. And you're wondering, well, is that really true? Well, that's the question. That's the question that we answered this morning from Ecclesiastes 2. So turn there in your Bibles, Ecclesiastes chapter 2, verses 12 to 17 is our focus. And here's the main idea of that thought. I'm going to give it to you right up front. The main idea of that text is simply this. Humanity's most advantageous epistemology is founded on human wisdom and promises a hopeless existence because it preserves neither one's life nor one's name. Now, I did you the favor of publishing that in the bulletin along with uh, the the major points, so uh, I don't have to um, repeat that, but I do want to define my terms for you as I go, so relax. We'll talk about epistemology in a few moments. Uh, (laughs) But let's take the main idea a line at a time, shall we? All right, a line at a time. Number one, humanity's most advantageous epistemology is founded on wisdom. It's founded on wisdom. Now, the next area of life that the sage examines is human wisdom. If a life of hedonism, which he just examined already in the previous text, provides no lasting value or significance to life, maybe wisdom will. Now, let's understand that what the sage means by wisdom. Simply put, it's the application of truth to life. That's it. Application of truth to life. You could take a body of knowledge and you apply it in order to accomplish certain ends. That's wisdom. Now, you do this all the time throughout your week, and you probably don't even realize it. My wife makes yogurt. And it's a very old family recipe that my grandmother kept alive, and we wanted to keep alive as well. And before my grandmother died, my wife was able to learn from her how to make yogurt. She has the know-how, you might say. So when my wife applies this knowledge to the fine art of yogurt making and is careful to follow the application to the letter, she produces grandma's yogurt. As I say, we frequently apply certain knowledge in many contexts to achieve certain goals, from a diaper change to an oil change. And if you cannot consult your grandparents, then YouTube has you covered. It seems seems to have all the knowledge that we need to achieve the wisest course of action to accomplish a particular task. Do you need to build a brick wall, lay a foundation, change out a toilet? YouTube will show you. Admittedly, it, it cannot give you the, the flair and the artistic uh, ability that skilled trademen, tradesmen have acquired over the years. That's experience. But it can tell you step by step how to accomplish something. That's wisdom. And it's the same practice of applying truth to real life that people use in the area of morality, spirituality, and ethics as well, which is much more important than laying a foundation or building a brick wall. People have their own body of information that they believe is right and reliable and on which they base their thoughts and their actions. So the body of knowledge that they have, it tells them how they know what they know to be true. Now, how do you know what you know to be true? 
How do you know that living together with someone who is not married to you is right? Or getting an abortion? Or taking revenge? Or, or taking recreational drugs? Or that becoming a monk and living in, in isolation from the rest of the world is a good thing? Or breaking into a business and stealing whatever you want? How do you know? Well, you know because your particular body of information will tell you whether it's right or wrong. That's how you know. And if the process of applying knowledge sounds at all familiar to you pilgrim church members and regular attendees, it's because we've talked about it before. It's called epistemology. And if you're not sure about that word, have never heard of it before, don't be afraid of it. It's just a term that philosophers use to refer to this process where that we're talking about. Epistemology is how we know what we know to be true. That's it. How do you know what you know to be true? What is your epistemology? That's what we're talking about. So humanity, humanity has a number of different epistemologies ranging from very wise to absolute foolishness. And in the first part of verse 12, the sage turns his attention to consider this. He says, so I turn to consider wisdom and insanity and foolishness. Now the sage identifies really two extremes here, only two, two extreme epistemologies on this spectrum. The wisest is on one end and the most foolish is on the other end. You get the picture? You see, not all epistemologies are created equal, even if people like to think that they are. So let me give you just a, a sampling of some of the ones that live uh, on both ends of the spectrum. All right, On the wise end here of the spectrum, you have it, the epistemology of rationalism. Rationalism. So rationalists believe that we're born with innate knowledge. And through deductive reasoning, we derive at further, further truths that ultimately lead to absolute truth. That's what they believed in the Enlightenment. Also over here in this wisdom corner, we have the epistemology of empiricism, which maintains that through scientific experimentation the world of the world around us, we can derive absolute truth. Whether you really can or not is another matter, but there is an epistemology also called rational empirical thought. Just in case you're not sure which one you belong to, this has the combination of the best of, of the two. Okay, so far so good. Now, if these three make up one extreme that, uh, that we're calling human wisdom, it only makes sense, now follow me on this, it only makes sense that every epistemology that is farther away from this extreme on the spectrum will deal less with rational thinking and more with irrational thinking, right? Until we actually arrive to the other end of the spectrum, which is the other extreme, and that is irrational thinking. Foolishness. The most irrational one there is. Now, you might be saying, well, look, I, I understand this epistemological spectrum that goes from wisdom on one end to absolute foolishness on the other, but what I don't understand is why anyone would ever live by an irrational epistemology. I mean, really? Oh. Well, that just, that just seems, well, irrational. I know. 
Not so fast. There are plenty of people who operate way over on this end of the spectrum. Robert Raymond, the late Robert Raymond, in his A New Systematic Theology, explains that, quote, from Frederick Hegel's time to the present, many philosophers have given up trying to find purpose and meaning in the world by thinking rationally, end quote. Would you imagine? He explains further that they have rejected reasoning in logic and opted for an epistemology of irrationalism and relativism. Huh. You've all heard of Soren Kierkegaard, right? The father of existentialism. Well, existentialism centers on the subjective experience of thinking and feeling and acting. So Soren Kierkegaard believed that truth is not factual, it's relative. Does that sound familiar? Well, of course it does. Many Americans believe this. Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez put it this way, quote, one can be factually incorrect but morally right, end quote. Uh-huh. Well, let me give you two of the most popular epistemologies operating in our country right now, which typify the irrationalism that is on the other end of the spectrum. One is a postmodern epistemology, postmodern. It's characterized by a firm belief that there are no moral absolutes, no spiritual absolutes. Truth is not absolute, it's relative. So, the postmodernist creates what's right for him alone according to his desires. He doesn't say, what's good for me must be good for you. Oh, no. Now, he says, what's good for me might not be good for you, and what's good for you might not be good for me, but as long as we respect each other's views, then we can get along in the world. Sure we can, until your views infringe on my views, and then respect turns into rejection and violence, as we've seen. Irrational or foolish epistemologies, as I say, they deny absolute truth in the area of morality and spirituality, and they rest on relativism or even pragmatism. Pragmatism is simply what's right for me is what works best for me, right? Pragmatic approach. Whether it's right or not, as long as it works for me, that's part of the epistemology. Another even more bizarre epistemology that lives way over on the foolishness extreme is, how, is, is that I direct my life according to my gut. It's called intuitive thought, an epistemology of intuitive thought. It's my feelings. My feelings guide me, which, of course, in this case, are all important to me. In fact, even uh, feelings even trump facts. If I want to reinvent myself and be whatever I choose to be because that's how I feel, well, then who are you to tell me that my feelings are wrong? And those in our country today who push a transgender lifestyle, for example, operate by this intuitive epistemology, and as we saw in the example of Professor Bridges. So, you get the idea, I think. Within the realm of human thought, there is a spectrum, a scale, a scale of of wise thinking that's built on facts and truth that lives at one end, and a foolish thinking that relies solely on intuition and relativism and what and pragmatism or work, what works best for me as my ultimate guide on the other end. 
two extremes, the spectrum. And when you know the spectrum, you really don't have to explore all the other epistemologies in between that are just hybrids of the extremes. You don't need to do that. In this context, it should be obvious to any sane person that an irrational epistemology really is the worst possible since it denies factual data and creates a fantasy world for those who live by it, right? And if that's the case, it should also be obvious that any epistemology that moves away from this extreme foolishness and toward religion is better than foolishness. And if that's true, if it is true that the wiser an epistemology is, the better it is, well, then it should be obvious that the wisest epistemology is the best. Well, all that is quite obvious to the sage. In fact, he argues in the second part of verse 10 that his experiment is valid only when it considers the best epistemology, just in the case with hedonism in his last experiment. If you remember in our previous study, the sage looked at hedonism in its extreme, at its best, through the life of King Solomon. Hedonism doesn't get any better than when it's practiced by the royals. So he says here in the second half of verse 12, for what will the man do who will come after the king except what has already been done? In other words, no one can outdo King Solomon's hedonistic lifestyle. It's the best laboratory for examining hedonism. And the same is now true with rational epistemology. It's the best. Any sane person would agree. It's factual, truthful. So humanity's best epistemology is hands down based on wisdom. No question about it. Look at verses 13 and beginning of verse 14. He says, Then I saw that wisdom surpasses foolishness as light surpasses darkness. The wise person's eyes are in his head, but the fool, fool walks in darkness. So there's no question in the sage's mind humanly speaking, that an epistemology based on human wisdom is the absolute best that humanity can produce. On that spectrum of epistemologies, it's superior. And we would say the same today, in spite of how popular irrational thought is today. Let's just call it what it is, right? Insanity. The sage explains in the first part of verse 14... The wise walk informed unlike the fool who, who is like one that gropes in the darkness, feeling his way along to see what's really right for him. And it reminds us, I think, of Jesus' scathing commentary, do you remember, against the religious leaders of his day who nullified the word of God with their own human traditions. Do you remember what he said? He called them blind guides to life who lead other blind guides people to fall into a pit. So much for their wisdom. Back to the sage's experiment. Now that he established the superiority of human wisdom over foolishness, he poses the question that concerns his inquiry into wisdom. All right? Now we're into wisdom. And now he inquires. And he says this, what is so great 
about living by human wisdom. What advantage is it to me if I have a high IQ, am well-educated, have access to all the research I need, oh, and by the way, am as street smart as they come? According to the sage, who may have even fit this description himself, pursuing human wisdom is absolutely a futile activity. Now, that's a bold thing to say. Oh, he doesn't mince words. No, humanity's best epistemology is futile. Nothing more than a chasing after the wind. Now, why would he say such a thing? Well, that's because humanity's most advantageous epistemology preserves neither one's life nor one's name. That's why. As we've seen up to this point in Ecclesiastes, what is most important to fleeting human life is eternal gain. Lasting satisfaction that one receives reliable and everlasting compensation for one's labor in life. That's what's most important. So far, a hedonistic life promises at best only fleeting uh, satisfaction and pleasure. And the same goes for wisdom. While human wisdom is certainly more advantageous than a life of foolishness, ironically, both will ultimately lead to the same end, the grave. Wisdom cannot prevent any more than folly can, death, and it promises no lasting gain. Look at verse uh, second part of verse 14 and on into 15. He says, and yet I know that, that one and the same fate happens to both of them. He's talking about the wise and the fool. And then I said to myself, as is the fate of the fool, so, so will also happen to me. Why then have I been extremely wise? So I said to myself, this too is futility. Are you following his argument? Can you see this? If both the wise and the fool wind up ultimately in the grave, how is the wise person any better off than the fool in the long term? I might as well be foolish, do what makes me feel good, rather than do what I know is right for me at the expense of feeling good. And there's more. There's more. It's not just death. The wise and the fool will both be forgotten in death, along with everything else. Now, this, is, this is the sad reality of verse 16. For there is no lasting remembrance of the wise, along with the fool, since in the coming days everything will soon be forgotten, and how the wise and the fool die alike. Wow. Death, the great equalizer, takes not only your life, but it takes your reputation. Your name will outlive you for a time. That's true in most cases, especially if you have children. Your descendants carry on the family name, yes, but eventually family lines end at some point. And not only will you personally be forgotten, most likely by the second generation of your own family, and if not then, by, then certainly by the third, but your honorable reputation will disappear as well. And in some families, sooner than later. A fourth generation young adult carries, carries on in a disgraceful way, only to be scolded by his grandmother. Your grandfather would sit up in his grave if he could see what you're doing to the family name. 
Um, of course, we know what she means. Beloved, I have seen, well, I guess I should say I've lived long enough to know that all man-made institutions, and yes, even Christian ones, eventually go the way of all flesh. They start out conservative, strong and reliable, sound principles and honorable policies. But each generation relaxes those principles and changes some of those policies just a little. And then while each new generation inches away from the previous one in their outlook, by the fourth generation, the organization is miles away in their outlook from where their founders were. Actually, those who carry on the institution this way are even proud of their changes. They believe that their changes have been for the better. Oh, yes. Well, we don't do it that way anymore. It wasn't working for us. New times call for new measures. It's the same viewpoint that the leftist groups in America have when they argue that that preserving traditional marriage, the sanctity of life in the unborn, and Judeo-Christian values is going backwards, not progressing. And while we're talking about America, I think the direction of our country is a great case in point. I refer to the amending or reinterpreting of that body of knowledge known as the Constitution, which was drafted to direct the country in the wisest course of action. There are many things taking place today that are blatantly unconstitutional and would make the drafters of the Constitution sit up in their graves if they only knew. This digression is even sadder when it happens, of course, in the Christian context. I've seen a decline in the strong biblical stance over the life of many parachurch organizations. And, and I say most and not all because I just don't know all of them. Well, we come to the last verse and the bottom line of the entire text. If humanity's most advantageous epistemology preserves neither life nor their name... Well, then it promises a hopeless existence. It promises a hopeless existence. The sage speaks honestly in verse 17. So I hated life, for the work which had been done under the sun was unhappy to me, because everything is futility and striving after the wind. Wow, what a place to be. The most advantageous epistemology that humanity is, can offer is, keep in mind, it's not one that numbs the senses or placates our lustful desires or keeps us blind to reality. That would be the foolish epistemology, the irrational, the relativistic, the, the pragmatic kind of epistemology. Rather, human wisdom at its best, that is based on facts and brutal honesty, is very revealing. It's very eye-opening. It's the kind that folks in this country have lived by since its founding, right on up to the advent of postmodern thought in the mid-60s. And until then, America lived in a modern world that believed and embraced moral and spiritual absolutes. There were few public divorces back then, which seemed to be popular only with the rich and famous, but it was still regarded as taboo. 
Well, not anymore. And immoral activities of government officials, from the least of them right up to the president himself, were then kept quiet, hidden as much as possible, because they were considered to be shameful and an embarrassment to our country. Not anymore. Most families ate together, spent time together. Sundays were reserved for going to church and being with family. Well, not anymore. Norman Rockwell's famous painting, The Freedom from Want, which you know as the Thanksgiving picture, it became a symbol of family togetherness, peace, plenty, continuity, virtue, and hominess. Or homeliness, I should say. Sadly, that is a foreign scene to many younger generations today. So yes, a wisdom epistemology is is as good as it gets for people who live under the sun without a relationship with God. But a why, as wise as human wisdom is, as beneficial as it can be to live life under the sun, <clears throat> as helpful as it is for making important choices, and as worthy as it is to marry many older Americans to cultivate it in the next generation who will be running this country, the hard and sobering truth is living by a wisdom epistemology has no lasting gain no eternal significance for any person who lives under the sun without God as his God. The best that humanity can promise is a hopeless existence. What? How can this be? I know it sounds outrageous, but even human wisdom at its unbiased factual best cannot bridge the gap between humanity and divinity. In other words, you cannot hope to come to know about God, much less have a meaningful relationship with him by means of human wisdom. You can't get there from here. It's just not possible. Without a personal relationship with the Almighty, we're at a loss to enjoy his creation as we were meant to be, to please him, to enjoy a peace that passes all understanding, to to be unmoved by the hardships that so characterize human existence, to see actual benefit to God-given trial. We have no hope of eternal life with Christ in glory. For those under the sun who have no relationship with God, a life governed by human wisdom is as good as it gets. And the ounce of fleeting joy that you manage to squeeze out of a lifetime of work is the only reward you will ever enjoy. Sage We'll continue on with his experiments, of course, and we will see other areas of life that he'll consider. Vocation and honest work is next on the list. And it'll be a while before he starts to hint at a better way. But we will not wait for him. We will bring in that element that he certainly implies in this text, and that is the need we all have here under the sun to live with an above-the-sun worldview. And you may be wondering, if such a worldview is, is necessary, if a relationship with God is so vital to what makes life under the sun significant, and what promises valued gain at the end of it, what hope is there for anyone in humanity 
to ever have it if he or she cannot get it by human wisdom? Well, I'm glad you asked. There is a wisdom that leads to eternal gain, but it doesn't come from humanity. <clears throat> no, it comes from God himself. It is a biblical epistemology founded on God's special revelation that he gave to the church, that is the Bible, and it shows us how to live wisely as God defines wise living. Listen to how Paul describes it to his young protege, Timothy, in 2 Timothy 3, verse 15. The sacred writings are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. The Word of God, and in this context specifically the Gospel, is the supernatural Word from the mouth of God himself. It's the only body of knowledge that can lead someone to eternal life. It might sound foolish even to the wisest of people under the sun, but it's God's wisdom. And God's wisdom, well, God uses his wisdom to shame the wisdom of the world. Eternal life is gain, everlasting gain. And until we experience eternal life face-to-face -face with Christ himself in that better country, we can start to enjoy it now. Paul goes on to say as much in verses 16 and 17, All scripture is God-breathed, and it is beneficial for teaching, for rebuke, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man or woman of God may be fully capable, equipped for every good work. We see that God's word, the supernatural body of knowledge that God spoke and that has been recorded for us in written form, it's beneficial. It's beneficial for teaching, and that would be, of course, on wise living. And when Christians fall short of wise living, well, then the word will confront them on it, correct them, and then train them how to continue in it. It's also capable of equipping you for every good work. I want you to notice here that and above the sun worldview, there is something called good work. You see that? And Paul would further qualify that good work as really our eternal investment in the kingdom of heaven. First Corinthians chapter 3, eternal investment. That's what our good work does. It's just why it's good. It's work that produces valued gain for the Christian in the long run. Small wonder why Paul begins his important word to Timothy this way, continue in the things that you have learned and become convinced of, knowing from whom you have learned them. Those who turn from their <coughs> futile attempt to attain lasting gain on their, on their own and trust, in, and trust instead the saving work of Christ alone, which is what God accepts, he can enjoy a relationship with God that allows him to walk by the light of his word and as the old hymn by John Sam Samus goes, when we walk with the Lord in the light of his word, what a glory he sheds on our way. A saved life is a foretaste of eternal reward, lasting gain.
reliable compensation. We walk by God's absolute truth. We walk by the Spirit, as Paul says in Galatians 5, and we can apply that truth to our lives. And when we do, we enjoy godly wisdom. Godly wisdom is superior to human wisdom and is the only way that we can enjoy lasting satisfaction from the work we do under the sun and for the glory of God. Father, we are grateful for this truth, for your goodness to us in giving it to us, preserving it down through the centuries that it might wind up in our hands. And we're excited that we have had the assistance of the Holy Spirit in understanding this important piece of scripture. We pray, O oh God, <clears throat> that you would impress upon us the, the importance of godly wisdom and that we would indeed turn, if we haven't already, from any futile attempts to secure lasting gain for ourselves by anything that this world produces, to repudiate it and in fact turn and embrace the only work that you accept and guarantee for eternal reward, and that is the work of Christ alone. For those of us who have done that, O oh God, we pray then that we would enjoy and revel in your commands and your principles, knowing full well that they, they lead us to be more like Christ. And as we do, Father, we pray that our our anticipation of seeing him face to face with the promise that we will be like him would ever grow. For your honor and glory and for the benefit of your church, we pray. Amen. Amen.